Good morning, everyone. Hey, good morning. All right. Hey, everyone, my name is Mike, and uh, I'm uh, one of the, also on the team, as Jeff said. I also have uh, the opportunity to serve as a chaplain with the Clackamas County Sheriff's Office, and have a great honor there. Over the years, I've gotten a chance to meet several people who are just uh, people that I think everybody's got to meet. And one of those uh, people that I've gotten a chance to encounter about seven or eight years ago, uh, sitting at a, a lunchroom table, was Lieutenant Joe Torillo. Uh, I could ask Joe to share a little bit about himself, but I want to read his bio just so you get a chance to know a little bit about who Joe is. Joe is a 25-year lieutenant with the New York City Fire Department. He is now retired. <laughs> He's now retired on uh, disability. Uh, Joe spent uh, the first 15 years of his career at Engine Company 10, which is right across the street from the Twin Towers. In 1997, Joe uh, was taken off the line because of an injury, and he began to work in basically uh, fire protection and uh, began to work in that service as he went and he uh, was given some favor. He created a thing called the Fire Zone, which nationally has uh, won a Theo Award, which is a very pronounced and really good award with, uh, with fire excellence. Then Fisher Price came to Joe Torello because that's a face you got to make into an action figure. And so... Fisher Some people say I'm two-faced, but I'll tell you why I wouldn't be wearing this one. <laughs> exactly. So uh, uh, Fisher-Price came and they began a series to recognize first responders called Rescue Heroes. If you have a child who's under 18, you may remember those. I was going to bring mine today, but my wife uh, has it stored because I have assigned one because right here is Billy Blazes. And uh, so... Uh, I know, right? There you go. So on that day, they were going to bring out the Rescue Hero line with Fisher-Price. It happened to be a day that they chose because it was a significant day called 9-11, in order for fire prevention for people to remember 9-11 to be able to call out emergency services so you can get a hold of your rescue heroes. Well, that morning, they were about to do a press conference. During that, uh, that morning's press conference, something happened. At 8.46 that morning, American Airlines Flight 11 struck the South Tower. And that moment changed not only Joe's life, but the life of thousands, and really our whole country. And so we have an opportunity to be able to sit down with Joe Joe uh, was on his way to the press conference, immediately turned, went over to his old engine house, grabbed a set of bunker gear from another uh, firefighter who was not there that day, and put it on and then rushed into the towers. Joe, you want to explain just a little bit more of your story from there? I will, and uh, Pastor Vermeese, I just want to thank you for actually telling my whole story, so I don't know you know where to take it from here. Hey, we but only have wanna... a few minutes, pal, so That's there okay. you go. I'm sorry. So, but I mean, before I begin, I want to just say how honored I am to be amongst all of you here at the Abundant Life Church to where we commemorate uh, that horrific attack 15 years ago on September 11, 2001, when uh, we were attacked in uh, three locations, four different times, twice in New York City, once in Pennsylvania and also down at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. And that is a day that will live in infamy, just like the attack on Pearl Harbor. And I'm really uh, excited, I'm honored that you people would care enough to host me to share this special Patriots Day. And I know I'd be remiss if I didn't thank 
passed information, especially Deputy Chief Jamie Kahn from the Clackamas County Fire Department, who worked so hard over the last couple of months uh, to get me out here and to fill out my itinerary and, and arrange for all the events that I can possibly speak at in, in the last three days. So I just want to thank all of you for that. Right on. So Joe, set us up just a little bit, just in a snapshot in just a minute or two of what happened on 9-11. So you went into the buildings, into the South Tower, and then you were a structural engineer by trade. That's what you did before you went into fire. And so you understand the building more so than anyone else. In fact, I believe that you said it's going to come down, right? Well, right, because I was on the scene 14 minutes after the first plane had struck the North Tower. Uh, as Pastor Vermey said, I was on my way to a press conference that morning to introduce this new children's action figure called Billy Blazes, who was in addition to other action figures that Fisher Price had already uh, had, uh, like uh, Jake Justice, who was a police officer and Perry Medic, who was an ambulance attendant, and Sandy Beach, who was a lifeguard. Cliff Hanger was a mountain climber. Jack Hammer was a construction worker. And Billy Blazes was the new rescue hero. And I was introducing him that day when the first plane struck. And I never did go to the press conference. I made my way down to the World Trade Center site. And the first two things I said was that everybody on the top of those buildings are gonna die. I knew we couldn't get to them, and I knew they wouldn't get down. And then I said, those buildings are gonna collapse. And Pastor Vermeer is saying, well, why did you say that? Well, before I was a firefighter, I had studied structural engineering, and two of my professors were working for the concrete contractor on the Twin Towers, and they were able to take me and the other engineering students on a school trip down to the Twin Towers to watch them while they were going up. And as a young engineering student, uh, I would marvel at the fact that it didn't seem it had the requisite amount of steel that would support its upper structure. But uh, nonetheless, the architect and the engineering team certainly did uh, their, uh, their job and their engineering design as well as it should be, because they stood for 30 years before they were attacked. And then obviously I, knowing that these buildings are going to collapse, I tried to make as many people aware of that as possible, but nobody would listen to me. And then I myself got caught in the collapse and buried alive. So you were buried alive and then you were taken and placed on a backboard because you had your injuries. And then what happened next? Well, I just before I even go into that pass, I just want to say one thing because I think this is the appropriate time. As I was laying underneath that pile of twisted steel and uh, tons and tons of slabs of concrete and suffocating to death, I had a, uh, a recollection from the day that I was sworn into the fire department. And I remembered taking a vow that I'd be willing to lay down my life so that somebody else might live on becoming a new firefighter in New York City. And all I kept on thinking was, I never thought I was gonna live up to this vow. And today I'm living up to that vow. And I actually said a little prayer just when I thought I was gonna die. I didn't think I'd be living more than 10 minutes. And I actually thank God for this career and I accepted full responsibility. Right on. So the buildings collapsed. You were put onto a rescue boat. And then, and then on that rescue boat, the North Tower collapsed. That's correct. And basically threw you into the engine room of that boat, and then you were removed? Am I right? Right, when they dug me out from underneath the South Tower, I had a very bad brain injury. I had a fractured skull, all my ribs were broken, my arm was snapped in half, my neck and my spine was crushed, I was bleeding internally, and they carried me and placed me on the deck of a boat across the street from the World Trade Center and they were holding my head closed, and they, I heard them say I was gonna die if they couldn't get me to a hospital. And then there was another loud rumble and a roar, and everybody on the boat started screaming, oh my God, here comes the other tower. 
Everybody jumped overboard into the Hudson River and I was left behind on the deck of the boat. I broke free from the stretch and I stuck out my hand and I felt the doorway and I jumped in, but it was the entrance to the engine room 10 feet below and I ended up diving head first into the engine room. Now the North Tower buried the engine on the, uh, the, the boat rather on the Hudson River. I was buried a second time and suffocating again. So then you were taken off and you were taken to New Jersey because you were in another gentleman's, another firefighter's uniform, they thought mistakenly that it was him, not yourself. That's correct. When I was in the operating room, they were cutting my clothes off, and we all write our name on the inside of our coat. It said Tommy McNamara. Now, I don't know if I look and sound like a McNamara, but that day... God bless the Irish. So, from there, there you are. So, Joe, um, significantly, thank you for sharing your story. If there was one thing we hear all the time, especially when it comes to around this time of year, 9-11, is never forget. Is there one piece that um, is so important that you would love to leave with each of us about why that phrase stands out to you, to never forget? I mean, I think it's important in whatever capacity that you walk through this world with, uh, whatever your career might be, whatever your profession might be, whatever your political persuasion, uh, whatever your beliefs are, I think it's really important that uh, people really reflect on the purpose of all human life and why we were put here. You know, we struggle with that answer all throughout our lives. We Sometimes we don't know if we're ever going to find that answer. It just seems so far away and people climb to the top of the mountain to quote unquote look for, for that answer. And you can do that and I'm going to tell you where you're going to find up there. You're going to find some moss and some rocks and probably that's about it. All the answers that you really need, they're going to be inside of you and either you want to live and the life of what Jesus Christ left us for, that's a decision you make. Mm. And anybody can make that decision anytime you want. And it's as simple and as easy as that. Don't complicate your Christian life. <laughs> right on. Well, Joe, I wanna thank you for being here today. I wanna thank you for taking the time to be with us. One of the things that I think is so important. Thank you, thank you for this opportunity. Hold on for just a second. As we all uh, stand for just a moment, what I would like to do is, I would like to uh, simply pray for those that are first responders. There are so many. Those uh, first responders that choose to go where people run away from. And so what I would like to do is if we would uh, just stand in one accord and pray for those. If you're a first responder, we wanna pray for you so you know who you are. If you are fire, or if you're police, or if you're in emergency services, you know who you are. So we wanna lift you up and we wanna thank God for you. So let's pray. God, we are grateful in moments like this, that we get a chance to pause. Lord, we get a chance to be inspired by a story, but Lord, we are also grateful for that promise of Philippians 1, 6, that you would begin a good work in us and you are faithful to complete it. So I thank you that uh, you were doing that work and working through Joe. But Lord, for those who are standing in this room that are in emergency services, Lord, I thank you for them. I thank you, God, for their calling that you placed upon their lives to be able to go to places where people run away from to care for those who cannot care for themselves, to serve those who often can't serve themselves. For those in our community, they're going through the worst days of their life. I thank you for those that have the sacred opportunity to step into that gap. I pray, God, for their families, Lord, that you would give strength and peace to them. Lord, that you would give them comfort in those times where they feel there is none, that you would give them strength when there is no strength to be found, that you would give them endurance when there is no endurance to be felt. 
And Lord, we are grateful for who they are and for the ministry and the opportunity that you have given each of them. In Jesus' name, we praise you and thank you. Amen. morning. It's great to be here. Great to see you today at Abundant Life and a special welcome to those that are watching online. And by the way, uh, his name is Joe Torillo and I'm sure if you Google him, you'll see his story in more detail. So again, thanks for being here today. And we're continuing our study on 1 Corinthians 13 called Love Is. And I'm convinced that in our society, in our culture, we don't need more sex education but we have a desperate need for love education. And the reason is because I'm convinced that a major contributing factor to the divorce rate is a misunderstanding of the nature of true love. Because our culture defines love as romance or infatuation, or especially as falling in love. Now, do you know what falling in love is biochemically? It is the frontal cortex of the human brain being flooded with dopamine, which is the pleasure hormone. And one study I read indicated that the average person falls in love five times between grades 9 and 14 alone. <laughs> and the problem with falling in love is that human beings aren't wired to live in that state permanently. It doesn't last. It lasts anywhere from between 6 and 18 months tops. And so here's an important safety tip. Marriage is meant to be a permanent commitment. Don't base a permanent commitment on something that while you're in a temporary state of affairs. And there's a purpose to falling in love. Pulse rates quicken, noses run, stomachs churn. I'm glad I'm not Mr. Spock on Star Trek. It was all logic and no emotion. God wired us with emotions, but we get into trouble when, like I said, we try to base a permanent commitment on because we're in a temporary state of euphoria. Don't mistake it for the genuine article. You can be like a greenhorn prospector. You think you've struck it rich when what you've really discovered is iron pyrite or fool's gold. I've told guys that say, oh, I'm in love. This is it. And I'll remind them, uh, your frontal cortex is being flooded with dopamine. That's what's going on. <laughs> and the purpose of that is to give you the incentive to get, to get to know somebody better. But don't mistake it for the genuine article. 1 Corinthians 13 is a look at what the real deal looks like. The word used is the word agape. And the Greek language has actually four, at least four different words for the word love, but agape is the only word that's explicitly used to refer to the love of God. And love is not an emotion, it's a decision. A decision to act in another person's best interest. Pastor George has looked at love as patient, love as kind, it's joyful, it's humble. And today we're looking at that next phrase in 1 Corinthians 13, where verse 5 says, Love is not rude, it is not self-seeking. J.B. Phillips' amplified version says this, Love has good manners. And so Paul is essentially saying that love is respectful. And I think in this day and age, this word is needed. 
For example, uh, there's lots of rudeness going around on social media where everybody is a self-proclaimed critic about everything. It seems like civil discourse has become an endangered species. Or how about in traffic? How's that working out for us? Or people on cell phones? Well, the Bible says in 1 Peter 2, verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. And so, first of all, Peter says, that verse says, everyone, and then especially three other categories, Christ followers, uh, God, and governmental authorities. Now, when I taught in public high school for a bit, Now, there were students who would say, why do, I have to, why do I have to obey you? I don't know you. And, you know, classroom management is a huge issue. If you can't manage your classroom, you can't teach. And so I always begin the first day of class by saying something like this. I cannot make you respect me, but I can make you show respect. I only have three rules for this classroom. And there are, first of all, students shall show respect to the teacher. Secondly, students shall show respect to other students. And then thirdly, teachers shall show respect to the students. And that pretty much covered it all. It all had to do with that, showing respect. This is what the word means in the original Greek language. Respect means to place a high price or great value on something. Because when we respect a person, we increase his or her value. And to disrespect people means to lower their value. I believe that every person has within them a longing and a need to be respected. And respect is especially powerful in the marriage relationship. And the Bible points this out. In Ephesians chapter 5, husbands are told to love their wives. And that word is agape. It means unconditional love. Husbands are to love their wives unconditionally. So far, so good. But then the corollary to that, you would think that Wives are to love their husbands, but that's not what Ephesians 5 says. It says, wives, respect your husbands. Now, what's the deal with that? Why does it say that? Well, I would suggest it's because men are especially motivated by respect. Now, women need respect as well, but men are especially motivated by respect. I talk to men who are leaders in their businesses, and if if you ask, well, do you care if your employees love you or not? It's like, "Eh, not so much. But do you care if your employees respect you? Absolutely. In one national survey, 400 men were given a choice between going through two different negative experiences. And they're forced to choose one of the following. Which would they prefer? Now, the first experience was to be left alone and unloved in the world. Or number two, to feel inadequate and disrespected by everyone. And 74% of those men said if they're forced to choose, they would prefer being left alone and unloved in the world. For them, the greater negative experience would be to feel inadequate and disrespected by everybody. And most men will confide and admit, I would rather live with a wife who respected me but didn't love me than with a wife who loved me but didn't respect me. Back in the late 60s, Aretha Franklin released a hit record. Uh, Perhaps you remember the song, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. And it's, you know, it's an iconic song that's become associated with respecting women. And that's, you know, women need respect. I'm not saying that they don't. But what is ironic is that that song was written by a man, Otis Redding, two years before Aretha ever released her single. Otis released the song 
on August 15, 1965, as a message to his wife. How crazy is that? <laughs> but see, and here's the problem though. See, our culture conditions us with the idea that respect is earned. Now I want to clarify. I, think, I believe that trust should be earned. It's not safe to trust somebody who's not trustworthy. But respect is unconditional. It's as unconditional as agape love in that Ephesians passage. And here's how disrespect can play out in a marriage. My wife, who maybe I've, I've mentioned before, is a smoking hot fox. I mean, she's a, she's a stone cold fox. But on occasion, she will approach me with a criticism. Now, it's not because she wants to make my life miserable. She wants to connect and she, she's more intuitive than I. And so she tends to sense the disconnection first. And so she's, her motive is to connect. But if I pick up on disrespect in her voice, things have the technology to go south in a hurry. Because typically I'm confronted with two choices, neither of which are very productive. First is escalation and counterattack, and that's never a good idea, it's never a good thing. That's negative communication. And, or secondly, which I think is more honorable in my opinion, is withdrawing in silence. John Gottman calls it stonewalling. But again, that's not productive. So I have had to learn, and I think it's almost like a magic bullet, is uh, the art of reflective listening. So that's my responsibility. If I can do that, it's really gonna help. Things are gonna go a whole lot better. But her responsibility in that equation, she has learned over the course of more than 39 years of marriage that how she says something is at least as important as what she says. And so she's learned, you know, some strategies like I statements instead of you statements and that sort of thing. And so, but if she conveys respect, it just, it's so much easier for me to re respond with a reflective statement. Now, she might feel, how can I show respect for him when he's come across so unloving? He doesn't deserve respect. He's hurt me. But once she's learned to convey respect, it changes everything. John Gottman says that he can predict whether a couple is going to make it or not within 30 seconds of listening to their interactions. Because he says if he hears contempt, he says that marriage is over unless there's some serious change that goes on, like showing respect. So don't buy into the conventional wisdom that respect has to be earned. If the president of the United States walked into this building, I would show him respect doesn't matter if I agree with his policies or I disagree with his policies. That's immaterial. It's because of the office that he holds. That's why I would show respect. But there are some other reasons I want to get into, theological reasons why we should, we should respect everyone. But how do you know if you're a respectful person? Well, the answer to that is, do people feel valued or devalued in your presence? Because people will forget what you say, but they will never forget how you made them feel. So, the question, why should I show respect to everyone? A couple of reasons. First is this. Because every person is created in God's image. Psalm 8, verses 3 through 5 is an awesome passage. Where it says, when I look up into the night skies and I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you've made, I cannot understand how you can bother with mere puny man to pay any attention to him. And yet you have made him only a little lower than the angels, and placed a crown of glory and honor upon his head. 
Take a look at the person sitting next to you because that person is made in the image of God. Image means snapshot or reflection. That person is a snapshot of God. And here's a newsflash. You also are a snapshot of God. And what that means is that you and other people have inherent worth and value, unimaginable intrinsic value. The great theologian, Dr. Seuss, put it this way. A person's a person, no matter how small. Last week, Pastor George spoke on humility. and My favorite definition of humility is to see yourself the way God sees you. Because that's what realism and that's what healthy spirituality looks like. Because when it comes to humility, there are a couple of extremes. On one end is arrogance and pride. But the other end is self-loathing. And I think in a lot of Christian circles, we confuse inferiority and poor self-esteem with humility. And they're not the same. Self-respect is actually closely related to, hum- to humility. My wife, Sean, has too much self-respect to tolerate bad behavior for me. And I appreciate that. I actually respect her for that. That's one of the qualities that drew her to me in the first place. And I get it. I understand that if you've been in a, a victim of, of abuse in a relationship, the struggle with self-respect is especially acute. But that's why all the more we need to get our identity and our self-respect from God and to tap into what he thinks of us. Because that's the important one. When Gideon was called to deliver the nation of Israel in Judges chapter 6, the angel of the Lord said to Gideon, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon's response was, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Now, Gideon didn't come up with that on his own. That had been drilled into him. He was the least in his family. His family was the least in his clan. His clan was the least in his tribe. His tribe was the least in the nation. And so Gideon played and replayed that tape over and over again in his mind. But that is not how God saw him. God didn't see Gideon as a loser or a wimp. He saw him as a mighty warrior. And he hadn't even done anything yet. Frank Szymanski played center for Notre Dame football back in the day. And on one occasion, he was called to testify in court on behalf of someone else. So the judge asked Frank Szymanski, what do you do? He said, I play football for Notre Dame. The judge was intrigued. He said, well, what position do you play? said, I'm the starting center. And so the judge said, well, are you any good? Frank replied, your honor, I am the best center Notre Dame has ever had. Well, his coach, the legendary Frank Lay, was surprised by what he'd heard because Frank had always been mild and unassuming and, and uh, quiet. And so after court was over, Coach Lay asked Frank, why did you say that you're the best center to ever play at Notre Dame? And Frank said, I had to, coach. I was under oath. (laughs) See, humility isn't thinking too highly of yourself, but it's not thinking too lowly of yourself either. And humility is key to self-respect, who we are in God's sight. Well, we've been created in the image of God, and that is a big deal. Number two, because every person has been purchased by Jesus. Jesus died for every single person. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. God paid a ransom to save you from the impossible road to heaven, which your fathers tried to take. And the ransom he paid was not mere silver or gold, as you very well know. 
but he paid for you with the precious lifeblood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Do you know how much is something worth? Something is worth whatever somebody is willing to pay for it. That's how you determine worth and value. So what are you worth? Well, look at what God was willing to pay for you. He sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die on a cross and pay the price for sin so that he could be in a loving relationship with you and me. That's our worth. That's how valuable we are to God. Well, then number three, because we reflect God when we respect others, we reflect his character. 1 John 4, verses 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I, hate, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who doesn't love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. See, God has given us the incredible dignity of being loved by him. But that's not something we're supposed to keep to ourselves. We're meant to pay it forward and, and play it forward. Pass along to other people. Number four, because we receive what we give. This is the law of sowing and reaping. Galatians 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And so if you want to be respected by others, show respect to other people. Proverbs eleven seventeen says, a kind man benefits himself. A cruel man brings trouble on himself. So here's the question. How can we be more respectful and how can we get respect from others? Well, num- just three things. Number one, when I disagree with someone, be gentle and not judgmental. Now, maybe you've heard the saying, before you criticize someone, walk a mile in his shoes. And I like the corollary to that. That way, when you criticize him, you're a mile away and you have his shoes. <laughs> just kidding. But did you realize that criticism and judgment is not a spiritual gift, even though it might be the favorite indoor sport among some? Our job is not to judge people or even to change people. That's God's job. As Romans 14 verse 12 says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Even when it comes to our faith and sharing Jesus with people who don't yet believe, Peter says it's essential to be respectful. 1 Peter 3, verse 15, if anybody asks you why you believe as you do, be ready to tell him and do it in a gentle and respectful way. And Jesus is always our model, our example. This is how he responded in 1 Peter 2, verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So first is be gentle, not judgmental. Second is, when I'm correcting someone, be tactful, not just truthful. Proverbs 15, verse 23. Everyone enjoys giving good advice and how wonderful it is to be able to say the right thing at the right time. And what what that's talking about here is being tactful. Not like this definition of tact. It is... It is telling someone to go jump off a bridge in such a way that they look forward to the journey. (laughs) The Bible, though, has, I think, maybe the best definition of tact of all, and that is Ephesians 4.15, where it says, speak the truth in love. And for my money, that is the briefest and most profound definition 
of spiritual maturity that I've come across. Because when you can do that, you're well on your way. In fact, the way that's worded in the original language is if it's not done in love, it's not the truth. See, have you ever had the person, had, had, had the experience of being beat up by the truth? Yeah, the truth can either be a healing salve or it can be a poison. So don't leave love out of the equation. It's not a loving thing to omit the truth, but the truth is always done in love. At least God's truth is. Proverbs 15, 4 says, Kind words bring life, but cruel words crush your spirit. Have you ever met anyone who is proud of being rude and abrasive? Well, I just tell it like it is and let the chips fall where they may. I just speak what's on my mind. But what that person is really communicating is that they are reckless in their relationships and they don't really care about other people. That's what they really communicate. Well, number three, when I'm being served by someone, be understanding and not demanding. I think Christ followers should be the most respectful people around, especially to those who serve us. It could be bank tellers, gas station attendants, or servers at a restaurant. But mark my words, you can tell the character of somebody by how they treat somebody who's serving them at a restaurant. Because that, if that person is, is demanding, that is not a nice person. That's not a good person. Mark my words on that. How do you treat people who serve you? Are you understanding or demanding? There are lots of Christians who have Bible studies in restaurants, and that's, that's, that's fine, but then they turn around and they're the most demanding guests and they, they're the worst tippers. That's just rude. The key to treating people with respect is to treat them the way that you'd like to be treated. That's the golden rule. And Jesus is the one that came up with that in Luke 6, verse 31. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Dwight Eisenhower spoke on how respect is, is powerful. This is what he said. He said, this world of ours must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect. And in this day and age, with politics the way they're going, that's more needed than ever. But see, before we can make the world a better place, we have to make ourselves better people. It begins right here with us. Loving people the way God does, treating others with, with respect by experiencing God's love for ourselves. You know, we cannot give away what we don't have. And so the place to begin is to, to get co connected to God and experience that vital love relationship with him. I'm going to give you a chance right now to do that, to make that commitment, to make that surrender. And so if you're doing that for the first time, I'd like to invite you to pray out loud with me. But if you've already done this, I'd also like to invite you to pray out loud as we close in prayer. Will you join me in prayer? God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for creating me in your image. Thank you for Jesus and for the forgiveness of sins. I commit my life to you. Let me be an instrument of your love to others. In Jesus' name, amen.